Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have John Rennie uh, with us today, and he is a professor of urban planning at Florida Atlantic uh, University. Thank you for, for joining uh, joining me today. My pleasure. Yeah. So tell me um, a little bit about your background. So I'm a professor in urban planning at Florida Atlantic University, um, FAU. I also run our undergraduate programs. We have two. One is in urban design and one is in urban and regional planning. And I run also a research center at FAU called uh, CUES, the Center for Urban Environmental Solutions, which has been around for almost about 50 years. And we uh, work with um, various types of uh, federal and state agencies we do work with. Um, We have um, research funded by the MacArthur Foundation and the Kresge Foundation. And it's all about trying to look at um, smart growth, uh, sustainability, resilience, quality of life issues. And such a big part of that is historic preservation because Florida, uh, especially the uh, East Coast of Florida was settled uh, around the train line that Henry Flagler built back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And you know, they, they still form the basis, the backbone of, of our region. Um, before I moved to Florida about four and a half years ago, I was a professor at the University of New Orleans. And um, while I was working in New Orleans for about 11 years, I, I moved there right before Hurricane Katrina and, and was involved for many, many years in recovery, uh, rebuilding of New Orleans. Um, and then my wife and I, we personally got involved by buying a house uh, built pre-Civil War in the Lower Garden District that we restored ourselves. Um, you know, and we, you know, hired contractors to do some of the work, but we actually learned a lot of the trades ourselves: plumbing, electrical, plaster, carpentry. Um, you know, you name it, we 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 did it. And um, so I have a, a, a you know a, a deep love for historic preservation. And when I moved to Florida, what we we looked at when we started looking for neighborhoods was um, historic districts. And so we ended up buying a house in Flamingo Park in West Palm Beach, which is one of the oldest neighborhoods in South Florida. Um, I love that name. <laughs> yeah, our house was built I think in 1926, and it's a very walkable, human-scaled neighborhood close to everything. We, we bike, we walk, um, 
And so, um, you know, we, we kind of, I like to practice what we preach to the greatest extent possible by trying to live a lifestyle that is not, um, you know, as we, we try to, you know, try to live, live the, the, the car-free lifestyle though, with three kids, I, I have to say that that's kind of impossible now. Oh, you still, sure you still need a car. Yeah. And you have to get yourself, um, or you have to get them to all the places they need to go to <laughs> that aren't just right in the neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, pre COVID our kids are home right now, um, with, uh, virtual schooling, but, but we, we live about two miles from school. So we, we, I bike the kids to school. Um, I often bike to what's called tri-rail, which is a commuter train here in South Florida. And, um, I put my bike on the train and I, take the train down to West Palm beach. And I, I, I'm sorry, take the train from West Palm beach to Boca Raton and I can bike to my office. And so it, it's nice. I mean, we try to instill in our children, um, you know, kind of these, these values that we have and including preservation because every summer we go back to new Orleans for uh, at least three or four weeks and we do repairs on our house. And my oldest son, who's in second grade, he's seven years old he's just developed a, a, a huge love for um, fixing things and, and he loves tools. So every year oh, for great. Christmas and his birthday, we, we buy him tools. And <laughs> when I first started, we started buying him kitty tools that were plastic and junk. And then I, I said to my wife, you know, why, let's just buy him real tools. So I actually yeah. buy him real tools for Christmas and he's, he's developing a nice collection and, and developing <laughs> his uh, interest in historic preservation. I think that's great. I think that's great. And I think about like, oh, no, that could be dangerous. But I also think like I know like some of like the Waldorf and the Montessori schools are in are into encouraging children to to do things that we might think are dangerous just to kind of let them test their own limits. And I think that there's there's some wisdom there. Oh, exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, our in fact, our neighbor, Gus, um, who my son really looks up to, you know, Gus is, um, you know, kind of uh in his mid, I think he's in his mid sixties. And he, um, he bought my, he buys my son new tools every time we go and they work on projects together. Yeah. So his first tool was a coping saw. <laughs> and, um, he, he was, he was using his coping saw when he was like four or five years old, you know, and he, he's yeah. never cut himself with it. You know, he's That's, very yeah. responsible with it. So I think there's something to that Waldorf Montessori method. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, um, tell me a little bit about the center for urban environmental solutions. So um, Q's has been around for a long time, uh, about 50 years, and it was started by a, um, you know, now a, a very legendary, uh, 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 I don't know if he was a planner, urban planner, but uh, he, he was a professor in political science and um, had a number of very senior roles, both at the university as well as in the state. His name was uh, John DeGrove. And he at one point, I think, was a, he was a secretary of the state um, agency that oversaw planning and growth management in Florida. And um, he, he worked on putting together uh, all sorts of plans and policies to um, direct and steward growth in Florida uh, to, to try and be responsible. And, um, you know, in honesty, I think a lot of the plans and policies that were put into place in the 70s and 80s were well-intentioned, but mm -hmm. ultimately had some really 
adverse um, outcomes that our state now faces. So for example, this concept of infrastructure, um, you know, adequate infrastructure, concurrency with plans, right? So the idea was that as, as a developer is gonna build a new subdivision, they weren't necessarily allowed to develop a subdivision unless they would either build or put money into a pot to make sure the roads could handle the traffic generated right. by that. And so what we now have, you know, in 2020 is, is a region of these ultra wide roads that are so inhospitable for bicyclists and pedestrians. And, you know, Florida has, you know, it's like number one in the state for, um, you know, bicycle and pedestrian fatalities. And so, we, we, you know, we, we are constantly having to revisit our policies and that's kind of what we do at Q's is we try to think, how do we retrofit our community to promote more, more, um, you know, sustainable outcomes. We look at environmental issues and, and quality of life and economic uh, outcomes. Um, the area that I specialize in is um, transit-oriented development. So I've been looking at how do we promote growth and development of walkable mixed-use communities. And a lot of these are in old historic areas of, of South Florida um, to, you know, revive these locations and these neighborhoods and, and, um, and, you know, deal with a lot of very serious issues like right. housing affordability and gentrification. So we look at all these issues. And then I also have been increasingly looking at sea level rise and how that's going to impact our communities and we're doing some really cool work with virtual reality and and working with communities to have them put on these virtual reality glasses and look at the long-term impacts of what you know a three-foot sea level rise would mean in their neighborhood or on their main street and so las olas boulevard which is the historic main street for fort lauderdale is an area that we've completely modeled in in virtual reality so you can see what a a three foot sea level rise impact would be like uh, on, you know, that, that uh, historic main street in Fort Lauderdale. Um, and so, you know, we, what we try to do, what I try to do as, as a, as a professor in urban planning is to uh, educate my students um, on, on the various tools and, and programs that we can to engage with the community. But at the same time, we do applied work with mayors and um, planning directors and, and others, and um, you know, use the cities as like a living laboratory uh, to be able to uh, work with them to get them to look at you know the, the various concerns they have around transportation, land use um, issues, and building right. housing and building issues. Yeah, when I was on the when I was on the website preparing for this, I noticed that your publications have a wide range of topics from, you know, sea level to policing to disaster preparedness. And I was thinking, you know, how does it all fit together? But I think that that it does if your if your goal is to, you know, make a, a sustainable, just, you know, living for everyone. I think that, that all those things do feel, fit together. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. My, my, I would say, you know, if I if I boiled it down, I'm a land use and transportation planner. And I look yeah. at how land use and transportation systems interact with one another. And historically, you know, for thousands and thousands of years, we have built cities around people. And, you know, we, we have, um, you know, really um, in the last 200 years, uh, you know, started to change how we build our cities. Really, it's been in the last, you know, 
60 to 70 right. years, you know, we've redesigned our cities to be built around automobiles. And um, I just saw this, this amazing documentary on Netflix. Um, I think the guy's name is David Attenborough, um, who does like the Our Planet series. And, you know, and, 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 you know, what we've done over the last couple hundred years is we have really lost touch of, of how people should be the focus for our communities and our and our and our cities and right. our regions, we've we've just destroyed nature. We've destroyed species. We we you know we have a lack of biodiversity, um, and so in order, I think, for us to you know go back, I mean, we, we're we're not going to be able to you know get rid of cities. You know, cities right. are, are here to stay. And cities can be very sustainable. I work with a professor at a University of Virginia named Tim Beatley, who, who promotes this concept called biophilic urbanism. And that's bringing nature back into cities, you know, bringing in more landscaping, vegetation, even, you know, buildings that have green incorporated into the structures themselves. And you're seeing more and more of that. And, you know, that could be used to generate uh, sustainable energy, renewable energy, um, you know, solar, wind, geothermal, and really just to try to begin to reduce our impact on, on, on uh, nature. Mm -hmm. And I would say what I love about historic preservation is that really, if you look back at our history, and I love going to Europe and, and you know, play, play Asia, I've, I lived, you know, I've traveled all around the world. And what you find, at least for me, is that the places that are historic are so much more interesting and they are so much more sustainable. And so we just right. kind of need to go back to that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think too, like if and when we talk about like energy efficiency in, in historic buildings, you know, I always try to remind people they these buildings were built before energy was easy to get and cheap. So, you know, they're they're inherently, you know, going to try and keep you cooler in the summer and warmer in the winter because they were they didn't have, you know, they couldn't just go turn the thermostat on. <laughs> Absolutely. In yeah. fact, you know, my my house is built out of a terracotta clay block. Oh, it's yeah. called um, Spanish hollow tile. And I can tell you that it really does a great job in keeping our house cool because we live in Florida. So right. it's hot most of the time, because, you know, that, that, um, that material does a better job in insulating. Right. And well, we live in the insulation, but then also the, the airflow through the tiles. Is that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we live in such a humid climate. We, we have an addition that was built, I think, in the 1960s or 70s. And I recently took out a closet to make a little bit more room for home virtual schooling because of COVID. Right. So as I was taking out this closet that had been installed, I had to open up one section of the wall in the new addition. And it was all, you know, the uh, insulation and, you know, there was a water leak in, in the ceiling, which happens in every house right. you have water leaks and it was all black mold in there. So uh, I had to tear all that yeah. out, you know, and, and in, in, in the South, especially in, in the Southeast where we get lots of rain, you know, you almost, you can't design a building. I mean, you try to design a building to keep water out, but it's just right. never going to happen. Right. So you have to figure, you know, how can we create 
materials that can have longevity. You know, maybe you can keep water out of a house for 10 or 15 or 20 years. Right. right. But ultimately, and I've seen this with my house in New Orleans, it was built in the 1850s. And my house that was built here in 1926 is that, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, the techniques that are used in historic preservation could really inform modern building practices much better. Right. Well, and I was thinking, you know, the the more traditional materials like plaster and, you know, some of the other the other materials that would be on the interior house will dry out if it gets wet. It usually will dry out unless the the the, you know, it continues. Correct. Yeah. 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 And so so, you know. Having you know, drywall and, you know, that has to be replaced if it gets wet. So like there, there are, I think, I think it's just greener and more sustainable. And, and also if plaster gets wet, it doesn't, um, maybe you only have to repair the top layer. You don't have to tear it all out and replace it. So, yeah. We yeah. replaced, um, several of the rooms in our, in our new Orleans house with plaster. And I, and I, I had, I hired a contractor to do it and then, he, you know, he was half reliable. So after he didn't <laughs> quite finish, complete the job, I watched him. I always watch contractors to yeah. learn how they're doing it. And so then I just completed the job myself and we ended up having to go back because in, it was like around 2007 or 2008, we replaced the side of the house and the wood that we used was this cypress and it, mm. it was not good cypress. It all uh, cracked, unfortunately. And so yeah. four or five years later, we had to go back and actually replace that whole siding. And in that case, we actually use modern materials. We use uh, hardy plank, which I yeah. love. I love hardy plank mm-hmm. um, over, over, you know, plywood sheathing yeah. and Tyvek. But the, because of the cracks in the cypress, the water got in and it did, you know, got into the plaster and yeah. none of that plaster was bad. I mean, it was, yeah. it was completely fine. Cause like you said, once it dries out, it's okay. Now had that all been sheetrock, it would have been. Oh, it would have been a mess. Yeah. It would have been a mess. Yeah. And I think that there are times, especially like, and, and I, I'm glad that we don't have to, to work in and make those decisions, but in like the very humid, wet climates, like New Orleans or, or Florida, I there I think that it makes sense to to choose substitute materials because they're they're the wood just is going to have such a hard time especially mm-hmm. if it's new wood um, because it, it hasn't had a chance to be stable. Um, yeah, so absolutely. It, it makes it makes sense to me to 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 choose a substitute material in in situations like that. Yeah, and and I'm you know I, I do a little bit of of side work in uh, a colleague of mine. Um, is formerly with a, a very large historic uh, development company based out of New Orleans. And then he, he, after, you know, 20 or 25 years working for that development company, he kind of went out on his own mm-hmm. and, and he and I, and a couple of others um, teamed up and we, we've bought a couple of historic properties here in Florida. And one of them that, you know, we're, you know, taking through the renovation restoration process um, you know, we're, we're having to deal with those same issues, you know, how, what materials do you choose to, A, you know, you have to honor, uh, if you want to get the historic tax credit, you have to right. honor yeah. park service guidelines, but sometimes you have to go to the park service and say, listen, you know, in this particular climate, yeah. you know, we have to do a substitute. And, uh, and I think, you know, I, at first I was very, you know, very beginning, I, 
I didn't know if we wanted to use the hardy plank, but I've seen it now, you know, perform very, very well over it a has a good period. track record. Yeah. yeah. It has and a I've been very, record. very happy with, with that particular material, but you know, there's everything. Windows is a big one. So yeah. we, we've in new Orleans, you know, we had to, we had to, um, go back with historically accurate windows. Yeah. So we actually, um, took whatever, you know, windows that we had and we had them all stripped and, and reglazed and, you know, and, and yeah, we, we do, yeah, we do a lot of window restoration. Yeah. But in, in Florida, a lot of the historic homes here, the the, the city has, you know, they actually would prefer you to use uh, hur a hurricane. Oh uh, yeah. That makes rating. sense though. Cause it would, it's, it's safety. And, and in that, in that balance, even in within the existing building code, that balance is it's always towards safety yeah. beyond above anything else. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. But yeah, you know, I'll tell you, it's when I look at a lot of the windows in, in the historic homes here, I, I'm, I kind of am disappointed because mm -hmm. it just, the windows look terrible in, in a <laughs> lot of the cases. Yeah. And there are some, now there are some more selection of companies that can make really nice historic rated windows that are that you know the hurricane rated windows that fit that really nice historic profile the problem is they're very expensive and so right. I, I hope oh, we yeah. get more companies to 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 make more windows like that to get more of a selection yeah yeah no and i um uh we had we were we built um a, a set of double hung windows and a set of um fixed windows, we, we built a bunch of them, but we had to take them to get tested at the, at the testing lab because it was a lead project. And we got up to a five, um, five, uh, a category five hurricane and, and the, the window started to bow and they, they stopped the test, but the wood actually was breaking, not the, not the joinery. So, so the guys in the shop were all very proud of themselves that <laughs> that's what helped. Oh, yeah. I've always wondered this when you do that uh -huh. and you go into the lab and they basically are breaking your windows to yeah. make sure that they're hurricane rated. Yeah. Then what, then do you have to just, can you still use those windows or no, do you they, to, they kept them. They, they kept, kept them. them. So, then yeah. you so we had to, we had to build an extra set for, for the testing. Oh, wow. So you have to build two sets of windows. Yes. Yeah, wow. well, it was part of a bigger job, but yeah, we had to build extra for for them because I was like, "Well, shouldn't we get the back?" And John was like, "No, they're doing more tests on them." Because I was I was thinking we should be able to get them back. <laughs> I always wondered that. Yeah. So, um, so tell me a little bit about um, transit oriented development. So, transit oriented development is what you find commonly developed in most of the station areas, train station areas in, in places like Philadelphia in the Northeast, where you have these old historic stations and next to the stations, a main street popped up and you would have retail and some office buildings and apartments, you know, typically higher densities in that downtown area. And so back in about 1993, there was a book that came out called The Next American Metropolis. It was authored by an architect and urban designer named Peter Calthorpe, actually based out of Berkeley, California. And he made the argument that 
we ought to go back to developing communities around this concept of building rapid transit with train stations that are walkable and bikeable. So that way people can get to, you know, get to the train station and then they'll get on the train and commute into a downtown location. Cause you know, in, in, in the, in the nineties, when he was writing this book, we were really starting to feel the effects of traffic impact on cities, especially in the larger cities like California, San Francisco, certainly New York, um, you know, Texas and all these different places. And so it was part of a larger movement called the, the new urbanism movement. Um, and uh, they, the idea of new urbanism is really, you know, going back or actually started out called uh, the, the neo-traditional neighborhood. So neo traditional meaning, you know, new old neighborhoods. And so, you know, the question then is like, well, what, what is the new old neighborhood that we ought to be promoting in, in, you know, in the 21st century? And really the concept is around building neighborhoods around people and allowing the densities to be able to support mixed use without having to get in your car and drive to places and being able to have effective public spaces that would allow people to enjoy greenery and nature, but not necessarily have everyone needing to live on a one acre, one acre lot, right? So if you create more of a dense land use pattern with townhomes and, you know, duplexes and fourplexes Mm -hmm. and apartment buildings and a mix of use, like, you know, was prevalent, you know, before World War II. Right. And, you know, that that pattern of development, we should really consider for promoting more sustainable outcomes, you know, in the 21st century. And if you look at other countries like in Europe and in Japan, you know, they have they have been pursuing these sorts of development policies throughout the 20th century. And so you can look at Scandinavia, you know, look at what, you know, they've, they've done in, in places like Copenhagen or Stockholm and, um, you know, and, and you don't even really have to even look overseas. You, you can look at Boston, New York, um, you know, Chicago and San Francisco and, 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 you know, back in the nineties, we were beginning to experiment with using rail as an alternative to highway expansion. So Portland, Oregon was one of the first regions that rejected federal money to build a, a new highway expansion and said, we're going to put in a light rail system instead. And then that became very successful. And, right. and ever since Portland's become you know, a national leader in, in these sorts of issues. So what I've done in my research over the last 20 years is to examine these locations. There's, you know, about four to 5,000 train stations around the United States. Not all of them are transit-oriented developments. In order to be a transit-oriented development, you have to be walkable, mixed-use, compact. And and so only about a third of, of these stations around the country meet the definition of being a TOD, whether it's historic or, or, you know, like right. a brand yeah. new location, like yeah. for example, in, 
in the DC area, there's a lot mm-hmm. of good examples of, yeah. of newer stations that were built in the last 20 years that, that have grown up in, in mm-hmm. you know, and built a modern TOD. And so anyway, when you look at all these places and the patterns, you find that the vast majority of trips in these particular locations are made in walking, biking, and public transit. And only maybe 20 to 30% of trips are made in, in uh, personal automobiles. And, and that was even really before Uber, right? Now with yeah. Uber, you know, you got- Oh, I'm more. sure that makes an impact too. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. And it, it, you know, Uber has a lot of different impacts. It, it, mm-hmm. In some ways it may reduce walking trips. It could reduce biking trips. It could reduce transit trips, but right. in, in a lot of ways it complements those trips. It allows somebody to be able to live car free and right. be able to use the bike, the train, the bus, the, the, the electric scooter, you know, all of that and, and be able to really break free from an automobile. So I, I'm a big right. advocate of having multi modes to support people's, um, you know, options, abilities to how they want to go in a variety of modes. And so I've studied all these places and and they are a lot more sustainable. Then I started looking maybe about eight or 10 years ago, I started looking at property values and apartment rents in these locations. And I noticed that the, the home values and the rental rates were really increasing so much faster in transit-oriented development locations compared to you know, all other types of locations, whether you compare it to non-TOD station areas or whether you just compare it to other neighborhoods in the same city or whether you just compare it to the average for the county or the region. You know, the, the, the homes in transit developments were, are renting and selling on a, on a per square foot basis for way more than what you find elsewhere. And so that tells you that the there's a, a, high, a very high demand to live in these locations. And part of the reason that the demand is so high is because the supply is very limited. There's not right. a lot of options for living that kind of lifestyle. So people that want to live there are going to pay the money to be able to have the lifestyle that they want, you know, that, right. that urban walkable lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And and so in, in, in academic terms, we call that self-selection. You know, people self-select to live in the neighborhoods that meet the characteristics that they want. And if it's a walkable neighborhood near a train station, you know, they're going to choose to live there, which means that they're going to be willing to fork out, uh, you know, more money to live right. in a house. I, I, I began, you know, about five years ago looking at at the expenditures of people living in these locations. Mm-hmm. And what we found was that while people do spend more on housing, there is a trade-off between the amount they're spending on transportation. Right. Because while they they are using trains and, and buses, and, and in some cases, you know, they, they also own vehicles, they on average have a significantly lower percentage of their income spent on transportation. So it's around 14 to 15% of their income is spent on transportation compared to the average American household, which spends about 20 to 22% of their income on transportation. So if you look at that gap of about five to 7% difference of the money spent on transportation, they're able to divert that into a more expensive house or a right. more expensive rent. Now, if you own the unit, that's not necessarily a bad thing because if you're spending more of your income 
on the house and less on transportation, you're you're putting more money into your house, which which over time, you know, will right. hold value and you'll eventually see that money back. Whereas if you spend money on transportation, you'll never see that money ever again. Right. Yeah. So so I, you know, so over the years I started looking at these and then I did my uh doctorate at Rutgers um back in the early 2000s and one of my mentors was a professor there uh, named uh, Professor David Listikin and David is one of the leading historic preservation experts in the United States and we started jointly looking at the connections between historic preservation and transit oriented development we did a study and what we found were that you know, logical, most transit-oriented developments are in historic locations. Right, yeah. And so the other thing that we we um, looked at is that because of that connection, there is a lot of planning incentives, financial incentives that goes along with trying to either A, preserve that neighborhood around that train station. And in some cases, we found that local incentives led to a greater incentive to to demolish historic structures. So I'll give you one example of both, if, the, if that mm-hmm. will help. Sure. One example of, of how a um, an incentive can help to demolish a historic structure was exemplified in a factory in Denver, Colorado called Gates Rubber Factory. It was, I think, one of the first factories in the United States that made rubber hoses, uh, rubber belts and hoses for automobiles. And it was this large factory that was demolished about 10 years ago. And it was right next to a brand new train station. And the city of Denver had created a financial improvement district around the station, which included this historic factory that allowed the developer for that piece of property uh, to be able to use tax increment financing on both the sales tax generated as well as the property tax. Mm -hmm. Now, that wasn't necessarily the reason why that that factory building was demoed there were other liability issues around uh, contamination and things of that nature. oh yeah because of the rubber yeah because of the rubber but there was a historic preservation developer that wanted to preserve that building and turn it back into commerce and it was ultimately demolished i think because the landowner was afraid of the liability associated with it but one of the factors that made it more valuable as a raw piece of land was this tax increment financing district. Right. And, you know, the, the, the seller of, of the, you know, the Gates company who was selling that site, um, you know, felt it was, it was a, it was less liability on them to, you know, to demo it and clean it. And B, it would be more valuable as a vacant piece of property because you could put in more commercial which, you know, like, for example, a, a big box target is right. going to generate a lot of sales tax. Now, should that be next to a train station? That's a whole different point to debate. <laughs> but the point is, is that these incentives can lead to demolition. Now, in a lot of cases, we also found there were incentives and, and tax, uh, tax 
benefits, you know, for preservation that led to the preservation of buildings. Mm -hmm. And so we found examples of that around the, uh, around the country. And in some cases, we, we did find that there is a conflict between the need for increased density around these stations and the lower density historic structures that exist. But we, we recommended in our study, you know, that tools like transfer of development rights and other, other common tools used in historic preservation be implemented to try to preserve these buildings and put the development density in portions of that station area that don't have structures on it. You know, in right. a train station area within a five to 10 minute walk, you know, say a half a mile, which is about a 10 minute walk, encompasses about 500 acres. So, you know, if you have historic structures in that neighborhood, within 500 acres, you could find lots of receiving zones right. to be able to put uh, density in, in places that don't necessarily threaten historic structures. So, you know, I, I was very, um, very much enjoyed that work because it was an opportunity to work on two things that I really love. Uh, mm -hmm. looking at transoriented development and historic preservation and to look right. at the various issues and tensions and to be able to make recommendations to hopefully help cities and developers be able to better figure out how to achieve both goals, you know, with, with the same project. Right. Do you find that the majority, and I guess this kind of is my next question, but do you find the majority of, of city planners and people who are working in, in this field are also want to help put things, put ordinances or guidelines in place to, to help preserve, or is it, is it kind of like a byproduct? Do you think that's like usually a goal? Well, it, it's, it's a really good question. And I'll give you my, my two cents on, mm -hmm. on what I see is, is I do think that most planners understand historic preservation, that it's something that we cover in a lot of our, in a lot of our coursework when you right. go to school urban planning. But at the same token, planners don't all necessarily have a lot of power in cities. Right. It's a lot of the they local- They give recommendations, is that pretty much? Yeah, they give recommendations. Yeah. And a lot of times a developer will typically get to know an elected official and these elected officials often put pressure on the planning staff to approve the things that the elected officials want to see approved. Right. In some yeah. cases, you have elected officials who completely understand historic preservation, and, and that's great. In other cases, you have elected officials who just, you know, put pressure on, on planning departments to just, you know, allow whatever the developer wants to build. In some right. cases, you know, that, that could just be high-rise buildings that don't necessarily reflect the character of the community. Right. And so... The planner can begin in those cases to sometimes serve as a as a educator as to, you know, look at these other ways to do things, you know, in Plano, Texas, um, or I'm sorry, in Dallas, Texas, one of the case studies we looked at, a developer decided to to uh, preserve a whole bunch of buildings and was able to reap the the rewards, you know, from the various incentives that went right. along with that. And those incentives could be federal incentives, they could be state incentives, yeah. they could be local incentives. Mm -hmm. And and that, you know, ultimately I, I find creates a better place because at the end of the day, we want to create 
a, a vibrant place. Right. And I always find by and large, historic places are way more vibrant, you know, and there's, there are ways to be able to reuse the insides of buildings to get you the economic, you know, returns that a developer that you need. Right. Yeah. And, and in some cases, you know, you can, you can build new construction and, and hide it in a way to create a lot of density. In fact, most of the times it's really our parking regulations that are inhibiting the development much more so than, than anything else. And so if we we create more flexible parking regulations, that can often allow us the ability to uh, create vibrant developments that often reflect the historic structures. And a lot of times we build parking structures and parking lots that, that are, that are not even more than half used anyway. Right. And the, the assumption that everybody, every, every unit in an apartment building needs to have one and a half cars or, you know, and if you're, if you're moving towards, you know, you can walk, you can bike, you have, you can use public transportation. You don't need one and a half cars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And in some cases it's two cars per unit. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, I, I know we, Lancaster. I had just actually had to look up Lancaster city. So I know they're one and a half, but I know some are higher. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's, um, you know, one and a half cars is, is not bad con- uh, compared to a lot of the, the zoning regulations I've looked at. And in, in, in South Florida, a lot of them are two two cars per unit. And oh, my goodness. In fact, um, a lot of times you see these 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 apartment gu- buildings get built and the developers, you know, end up spending. They, they quantify it. You know, the developers now are fighting cities to say, hey, we don't need to build this much parking, but your, your zoning regulations are outdated. They, they go and they spend all this money and they build parking. They'll come back afterwards on their next project and they'll say, listen, on your last project, you made us build X amount of parking spaces. We only use 60% of that, you know, and that ended up costing us an extra $3 million right. that, that is just sitting there, you know, completely wasted. And so yeah. the cities are starting to catch on, but it's a slow process. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I think that, yeah, I think that all of those, um, those ordinances, I think, are being looked at again. I know I'm, uh, some, with some of my consulting work, we're looking at some of the historic district, you know, some of those regulations to make it a little bit, to to put some more protections in place for for some of the the older buildings. So, um, can you tell me about any challenges or trends that you see in urban planning and historic preservation? However, you want to take that. Well, I mean, let's start with with the biggest um, unknown, which is the impact of COVID mm-hmm. on, on on our communities and That's density. True. You know that I think that there's been a lot of discussion that COVID is is going to be the death knell for cities and density, and we're starting to see that's actually not necessarily true. There was a study right. just published in the American Journal of the American Planning Association that was published by. Um, this um, th- this professor from Johns Hopkins University um, and, uh, and 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 others, but you know she's she's looks at these health issues of planning and found that there is not as strong of a connection between density and COVID as as we might have initially thought there right. was. Well, and I think the initial thought probably was there just because it was in the Northeast and the Northeast is so dense. Yeah, and especially yeah. New York, right. which you know the problem was in the nursing homes, not necessarily in the dense neighborhoods. You right, know? right, yeah. Um, but you know, people people don't necessarily 
you know, they just associate with um, mm-hmm. Manhattan and COVID. And then they just think, oh, the answer to solving this problem is just to, you know, forget living in a, a building, a dense community. And so um, that's, you know, so we, that's um, an uphill battle that I think we're going to have to fight for probably yeah. several years is to, is to convince people that, you know, living in a walkable, you know, neighborhood that's, that, that's, um, more dense. I don't want to call it dense. I'm going to say more dense right. than your typical, you know, one acre subdivision um, does not necessarily make you more susceptible to <laughs> right. COVID. Yeah. Um, but um, you know that that I think that will eventually fade away. You know, COVID is obviously a big issue that's here for a while. But you know, once once that issue, once COVID kind of fades away, I think we'll go back to some of the issues that we were seeing before COVID. And I think probably the biggest issue that we are facing is that these neighborhoods, these historic neighborhoods, these walkable, mixed-use, vibrant neighborhoods, are quickly becoming so unaffordable because they are so desirable to live in that we are seeing an, a negative impact on the the working class people right. who lived in these neighborhoods for so long and who rely on public transit and bike and walk and right. so and you know and it has a disproportionately negative impact on communities of color right. on on um, you know foreign born populations and so what we're seeing with with regards to the gentrification issue is that people who need affordable housing are now being relegated to go live in car dependent suburbs where they can't necessarily afford the housing. They can't necessarily afford to have a a reliable car and transit service is so unreliable in those locations as well. And so, you know, I, what I see happening sadly is and we're all part of the problem in some ways because, you know, we all want to live in these great neighborhoods right. <laughs> and, we're, you know, we're all like, oh, gosh, did I really want to spend, you know, that much money on the house or that much money on the condo or that much money on rent? But I really want to live there. So I'll just have to dig a little deeper into my pocket. You know, right. not everybody can do that. And if That's, you're yeah. you don't have the means and these prices keep going up and up and we're really starting to see gentrification having a, a, a negative impact. and. Mm-hmm. In Florida, which is, you know, very interesting issue because we built the rail line on the high ground. I say we built, we didn't build it. It was Henry Flagler <laughs> who built it yeah. back in the 1900s, built it on, on, the, on a ridge that is about 10, 15 feet above sea level. It's, it's called a limestone ridge. And, you know, that's where a lot of these historic neighborhoods are, even in places like Miami, surprisingly, the old historic neighborhoods with these train lines where they're now, you know, building new train stations, uh, like little Haiti, for example, Mm -hmm. um, they're starting to gentrify. And, and, and these are the places where the people who are, are no longer able to afford, they're actually having to move to lower elevation neighborhoods. And, and then and then they're gonna have to deal with this the sea rise. Yeah. Yeah. And they're calling it climate gentrification. Yeah. Which is interesting, but it's it's a mix of just, you know, all the same factors that right. are at play in most other metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. I hadn't realized that, but 
you know, because I when I see the the maps of like what's going to happen to Florida, it looks like it's all going to be underwater. But I guess if you're if you're up high enough, it won't you won't be. And then you then you have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it really depends on where you live, what county you're in. Um, a two to three foot sea level rise is going to have pretty dire consequences to Miami-Dade County and right. Broward County and certainly Monroe County, which is the keys. Oh yeah. I live in Palm Beach County, about 80, you know, 60 miles north of Miami. And um, generally Palm Beach County is a bit higher compared to the yeah. Broward and Miami-Dade counties. But, you know, even in like Fort Lauderdale and in, and in Miami, the, na- the historic neighborhoods that for many, many years, even to this day, are generally blighted neighborhoods uh, and that are, you know, still kind of going through a bit of a, a renaissance. Yeah, they, they are, you know, they are on that higher ground because they're on that, that historic ridge where that train yeah. line was built and first settled. You know, these places were the neighborhoods that were overlooked back during the 60s and 70s and 80s when, you know, people were rushing away from cities to go live in, in suburban gated communities. Right. And now, you know, I, I, I'm in my mid 40s. And you know, ever since I kind of graduated college in the late 90s, I've always seen my generation, you know, flock towards cities, not away from cities. Right. But we all, you know, my generation, you know, our parents were the ones that left cities and we all grew up in the suburbs. And then, you know, and I, I saw some le- some lectures over the years where people say, just look at the predominant television shows of our times, you know, in the seventies, yeah. you know, you got these sitcoms like um, the Brady Bunch and whatnot right. that are all set in suburbs in the eighties. A lot of the sitcoms were set in suburbs, but by the time you get into the, to the mid to late nineties, they're all, all of a sudden it's the yeah. urban sitcoms. And that's, that's, that was my generation's desire was to kind of go into the city and live there. And even now, like I find my generation, you know, has children. There are s- certainly a, a large segment of my generation that have left the city to go buy a large house. But I live in a neighborhood that predominantly has homes that are about 1500 to 2000 square feet, um, you know, 15 to 1800 square feet. And you would be shocked at how many families with young kids are moving into these small homes and saying, I would rather live in a small home in a great location than to go live in a big home where I have to get in my car to go everywhere. And that makes, that makes sense to me. And and then I, then I was thinking also from a cleaning standpoint, that's a lot less to clean. (laughs) And even though my house is small, it still seems like it's impossible to keep clean. (laughs) I think it's just an ongoing struggle. So um, I don't know, are, because of COVID, are you, I know, I saw that you had some community engagement on the, um, on the Q's website. Did you have any seminars or anything upcoming that you wanted to promote? Uh, yeah, we are actually doing a, um, we're doing a movie screening called um, Coastal Cities that's going to be looking at this issue of sea level rise and the, um, uh, you know, its impact on cities. And it's a documentary that was produced by that professor I referenced earlier from the University of Virginia, Tim okay. Beatley. Yes. Um, that's coming up on November uh, 19th. I'm sorry, November 18th. Uh, 18th. When, okay. Yeah. And so you can go to our website, 
cues.fau.edu. That's cues.fau.edu um, to get more information. I'll, I'll make sure we have a link to that on our site where the podcast is, so that you yeah, you know, people absolutely. Can find it. And I don't even know honestly uh, if it's on the on the homepage, but um, oh, it is. Yes, November eighteenth from three to five p.m. Eastern. Planning Ocean Cities, and we're gonna. It's gonna be. A, it's gonna be a good program. So I definitely encourage you to do that. And then you know, go on our website, follow us on on Twitter, and um, or sign up for our newsletter, and um, keep in touch with what we're doing. We 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 try to do a number of these, um, you know, these 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 forums where we have speakers and you know, cover really interesting topics. And and now with this virtual age, you know, we're doing more of these lectures virtually. Yes, yes. Are the um, the newsletter sign up, is that on your website too? The newsletter sign up should be on our website, but we have a okay. new website and I don't know yet. Okay, that's um, fine. It, it is, it is. If you okay. go to our okay. homepage, okay. It, it'll redirect you. When you go to cues.fau.edu, it'll redirect you to a okay. our new website, but you can put your email address in towards the bottom there's a box and you could subscribe to our newsletter okay very very good well i'll make sure that those links are on our site thank you very much for for joining me i felt like i learned i learned a lot i i don't feel like i know enough probably about planning as i should so i i appreciate your time today well i enjoyed this and if you ever want to chat again in the future i'd love to so thank you so much very good thank you thank you Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.